Okay, today is February the 2nd, 2012, and we'll prepare ourselves in our usual fashion, a few moments of silent prayer, option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness. We thank You for this time that we have, that we can feast upon Your Word, that we can prepare ourselves for the challenges to come, that we can be ready to stand firm for the faith. We thank You for this opportunity. Pray that You will help us to concentrate, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We are in getting the Gospel right. And I'm going to go back all the way. We're, in, we're going to start Lesson 33 tonight, but we're going to temporarily go back for just a moment to uh, Lesson 28. The reason we're going to 28 because something occurred to me that I wish it would occur to me when I taught this in this particular uh, area that I was covering. It didn't occur to me then, but it occurred to me uh, yesterday, actually. And so I'm going, I inserted this in this area where I think it pertains to the subject matter. I, you probably don't have those notes, or if you do, I don't know if you can find them. We can just look up here. So we're going to deal with what we were covering January the 17th. Some say that one can claim he is a believer yet not really be saved if he doesn't meet the behavioral standards required to be a true believer. That is, if he doesn't persevere or endure. And you've heard me say more than once that there is no behavioral standard in the Bible that anyone must meet in order to be eternally saved. There is a standard. The standard for eternal salvation is faith alone in Christ alone. But a lot of people, the majority of people think, well, no, there's a behavioral standard and it has to be met and it has to be maintained for you to get to heaven. That's what I was addressing here. Where can one find these required standards? They are in the minds of the misguided and confused souls, but they certainly are not found in the Bible. Of course, this is not to say that there are no standards given in the Bible for believers because there are. However, they apply to post-salvational living, not to the acquisition of salvation itself, which is acquired by faith alone in Christ alone. So there are standards for believers to live by. But where people get confused is when they start trying to apply those standards for the experience, the experiential part of post-salvational living and apply them to the acquisition of salvation. That is a huge problem that people uh, are confused. They're confused about that. By the way, for those who would allege that there is a certain behavioral standard, either they will suggest it or they'll come right out and say that you have to do this, that, and the other thing, whatever they think the standards are, there's a couple of ways that you can challenge them on that. First of all, you can ask them, where are you getting this standard from? And 
how faithful to these standards do you have to be? And where do you find that? Already, if you ask questions of that nature, they're going to be sweating bullets because there is no standard like that in the Bible. But I'm going to take you to a couple of scriptures in just a moment that they may go to. And that's what occurred to me on the way home from Bible class Tuesday night. I thought about, you know, I'm saying that there's no biblical standard for behavior, but I thought of two places in the Bible that they may go to and allege that these are necessary for salvation, and that's why we're covering this now. They mistakenly believe that a behavioral standard for eternal salvation is given in the following verses. I want you to turn these verses because I want you to just do one. We're only going to underline one thing in these verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. How many times does Paul say this to, in his letters to believers? Or, do you not know? How many times? He says that all the time, does he? I don't know of a time when he ever asked them how they felt. But he asked them, do you not know all the time? Or, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he's going to elaborate on that. What's the unrighteous? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. That's a pretty good list there, right? I'm going to have you do something, but I'm going to give you the other scripture that is similar to this that they might go to as a standard of behavior. And it's found in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21. And it goes this way. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, when you look at this list, I think if you're honest and you think that not inheriting the kingdom of God means you're not going to heaven... We're in heap big trouble, are we not? I mean, especially the Galatians 5 one. I guess outbursts of anger, does that one get you? How about disputes, jealousy, immorality of any kind? Look up here in 1 Corinthians 6. The covetous, the, those who are covetous, have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever gotten drunk? I don't know. I'm just saying that <laughs> if these categorize people, if this is a list of behavior that you have to refrain from in order to go to heaven, heaven is going to be a very lonely place. In fact, that's my next point. If the behavior listed above would keep someone out of the kingdom of heaven, 
a kingdom of God or heaven, then there would be few, if any, who would uh, make it there. Agreed? And yet I've heard people go to these lists in order to confirm whether someone is saved or not because someone will be guilty of something on this list and say, well, they can't go to heaven. Look what that says. Well, read the whole list. I've seen people make a case that homosexuals cannot go to heaven because they're on the list up here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. See? Nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. And they're picking out one, one sin, but they're forgetting the covetousness or the drunkards or revilers ever swindled anyone. Here's the key. Now I want you to do this in both places if you can. I want you to underline inherit, both in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. They shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, 21. They shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay. When you look at that, for someone who would allege that people who are guilty of this type of behavior are not going to inherit the kingdom of, of God, and they associate that with entering king, the kingdom of God, meaning heaven, then what have they done to all the verses that say it's faith alone in Christ alone? They've added this whole laundry list to faith, have they not? And not only do you have to comply with that, you have to comply with it 100% continually. Okay, let's look at this. First of all, we know that these sins cannot keep us out of the kingdom of God because Christ paid for them on the cross. Is that not right? How do we know that? Well, let's see a couple of scriptures here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. Now, I know you all will be able to say this along with me, right? For God was in Christ, <laughs> well, you know, I, I, that reminds me of responsive reading, and I hate responsive reading. So we'll just go here. <laughs> here. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Right? Who does that? That's everyone, isn't it? And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Okay, so what this means is, no one, the world, God does not count the trespasses, the sins against anyone on planet Earth because we believe and we think and we know the Bible substantiates the fact of unlimited atonement. That when Christ went to the cross, he died for the sins of who? Everyone. And this is one of the verses. Another verse is in 1 John 2 2. And he himself, Jesus Christ, is the propitiation which means the one who satisfied God's justice against us for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the what? The whole world. So if these verses are true, and that's a first-class conditional clause, by the way, and they are, then these sins, all these sins mentioned here, have no force against us. Because Christ has already been punished, judged and punished for these sins. And then what enters is the law of double jeopardy. What that means is, 
God would be unjust to punish Christ for all of these sins and then turn around and punish us also, wouldn't He? So what this says is that these we know even from that much that these sins cannot be held against us with regards to eternal salvation because they are moot. They are not an issue when it comes to salvation. The only thing that is the issue is Jesus Christ. You either accept His atonement or you reject it. And that's why people go to hell, not for their sins, but for rejecting the free gift of eternal life, which comes through faith in Christ. We can gather that much already. We know that it can't mean what it may appear at a first reading here. Notice that 1 Corinthians 6, verse 10, and Galatians 5, 21, they do not say that those who practice such things will not inhabit the kingdom of God. Notice that? They say those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And there is a big difference between inhabiting and inheriting. That's why I want you to underline or circle that word, inhabit, in both of those verses so that you'll remember that. Inherit, excuse me. Thank you. Circle inherit, and you might say not inhabit. This does not say it does not inhabit. Every person who believes in Jesus Christ, I don't care if he spends his whole life in immorality, he is impure, he is sensual, He's a idolater. He's a sorcerer. He causes enmity. He has causes strife. He's jealous. He's outbursts of angers all the time. He has disputes and he's dissentious. He's he's factious, and he's a homosexual. He's a effeminate, and he does all of these things. Because a believer can do all of those things and do all of those things. All that means nothing, because they will inhabit the kingdom of God. They will be in heaven. But the question is, what are they going to be in heaven? So there's a difference between inhabit and inherit. All believers will inhabit heaven, but only the metachoi. M-E-T-O-C-H-O-I. I like that word. Metachoi. These are the partakers. These are the sharers. These are the ones that use their life wisely. They know what life is about, and it's not for temporal pleasure. They're storing up treasure in heaven by growing up spiritually. They're getting super grace blessings in time, and they're looking forward to the surpassing grace blessings in eternity. That's the metacoy. All believers will inhabit heaven, but only the metacoy, the ones who are spiritually mature, will inhabit Excuse me, inherit heaven. That should be inherit. I'll change it later. Inheritors will have the right and privileges that inhabitors will not have. Believers who practice such sins will inhabit the kingdom of God, but they forfeit their inheriting rights and privileges that could have been theirs. Remember Sunday I was talking about the specific, customized package of surpassing grace blessings that is in escrow for each and every one of us? 
that's what they forfeit because they squandered the time on earth. They believed the satanic lies that you can have fulfillment, joy, peace, security apart from God and His Word. And they go out and they try to have all the fun they can, that they can have and they are empty inside. They will not inherit the kingdom of God, but they will inhabit the kingdom of God. So my point... <clears throat> Let me get back up here again for a moment. Here's my point. If anyone goes to these verses because you make a case that there is no standard of behavior in the Bible that is required to inherit the kingdom of God, there is no standard in order to be saved. There is, a, there is a standard to inherit the kingdom of God. But what, when people read this, not one out of 10,000 will recognize the difference between that the focus here is on inheriting and not inhabiting. They think that this inheriting the kingdom of God means that they, these sins can keep you from in, inhabiting the kingdom of God. That you, in other words, if you... If you indulge in these sins, then you can't be saved. And what are good questions to ask if someone alleges that that's the case? Okay, does that mean that I can't do any of these things? If I do any of these things, I won't go to heaven? Is that what it's saying? And wait for an answer. If they say yes, okay. Or if they say, well, maybe not all of them. Well, which ones can I do get by with and still make it into heaven? But if they say you have to do all of them, I mean, you have to avoid all of them. What if you say, well, what if you just slip up one time? Let's say that I got angry one time. Is that going to forfeit my chances to go into heaven? Because what they're alleging is, uh, oh, look at this. In Galatians 5:19, those who practice such things, they'll say, oh, well, you can do it once or twice maybe, but you can't practice it. Okay, how many times do I do this, do I commit this sin before it's considered practicing it? And where do I go in the Bible to get that distinction? You see? Questions, questions, questions. They're not going to want to see you anymore. They're going to avoid you like the plague because they, they know anything that they say that you know is not doctrinal. Here comes the questions. Okay, I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to make sure uh, that you understood that if they do try to go to these scriptures and allege that this is what you must, these sins you must avoid in order to maintain your salvation, that it's not about going to heaven, it's about what you're going to be when you get to heaven, whether you're going to be a, a, an inheritor or an inhabitor. And we want to be inheritors. And if you do practice these sins, by the way, if this becomes a mode in your life, I can guarantee you, you're not going to inhab inherit the kingdom of God. You won't be rewarded. You won't be decorated because you can't consistently get into these sins and still make God and His Word a priority. You can't be having your spiritual momentum moving forward and be growing in grace and knowledge and be addicted to these sins. Pete. Mm-hmm.
I'm going to get back to that too. Yeah, this, that's a good point, Pete. Uh, for those who say you must walk the straight and narrow, not one in a thousand believers know that these verses are there. But I can assure you, if they did, and you ask them what is the straight and narrow, they would turn to these verses and say, this is the straight and narrow. And anybody that's grace-oriented, anybody that understands how a person is saved would recognize, hey, this cannot mean that we're not going to heaven, that we won't, we won't even inhabit the kingdom of God if we get into these, then they, they don't know anything about uh, eschatology or uh, Christology or soteriology or harmardiology. Uh, they don't know straight up from straight down. But that's a good point. This is what they would allege is the straight and narrow. One more point, before I think, before we get to where we want to be. Most people are not aware of these verses, but they have already made up their behavioral standard in their own mind that they believe must, uh, that you must adhere to in order to maintain salvation. They believe if, look at that, their, not God's standard, it's their standards are not met by professing Christians is because they had a head belief and not a heart belief. Of course, no such distinction is found in the Bible. Neither are there any behavioral standards one must adhere to uh, outlined in the Bible in order to prove that, that a person is truly saved. There isn't one. That's why I went to these two in case by some uh, outside chance that someone might go to these scriptures and say, here's your behavioral patterns, you can say, yeah, that's for an inheritor, not an inhabitor. And if you wrote not inhabitor in these, you'll remember that. Linking obedience with faith regarding salvation makes obedience or good works the issue for validating eternal salvation and makes them and their good works instrumental in securing eternal life. How can that how how can that be true? Uh, how can true faith be manifested in perseverance in works and yet allow for periods of carnality? You, you remember why that's important? Because if it takes good works and you get into carnality, you're not producing good works, are you? And so how many good works does it take? How long can you be in carnality before it proves you weren't really saved to begin with? Or that maybe you have lost your salvation? How can anyone know for sure he is saved at any given point in time? When he is carnal, he is not persevering, so no one can meet the criteria for authenticating true faith or persevering unless they are sinless. You got that? That was just review. Now we're going to get over here to where we were. Some of you, if you've never seen a sheep, I mean a wolf in sheep's clothing, that's what, there's one right there. You shall know them by their fruits. We're just going to fly through this. We went through this last time, but you can, I think you could, uh, you need another shot. Now, does this mean that you can determine someone's salvation by, the, by their behavior? Is it our job to go around and evaluate people's behavior to try to determine if they're saved or not. Well, we're going to see. False teachers were and are wolves in sheep clothing today as they were then. 
The outward behavior is not corrupt, so it would be impossible to tell if they're saved or not by their behavior. Only by what they say and teach do they reveal who they really are. Now we went to Matthew chapter 7. Go there because we added a lot of notations to this. Some of you weren't here. This is the time to get these notations. Very famous part of Scripture. This is the last part of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to give you... I filled in the gaps here so that you would know the meaning that is in harmony with the context of Scripture. We have inner, which is a verb. It's the aorist active imperative. This is command. Enter through the narrow gate. The narrow gate is the gospel. For the gate is wide. What is the wide gate? It is religion. The gate is wide, and the way that would be salvation by works is broad that leads to destruction. You know that the great majority of people believe that the only way you can get to heaven is if you're Good deeds outweigh your bad deeds and all the other lies that Satan has has promoted. And there are many who enter through it. That means who try to get to heaven by their works. Verse 14. For the gate, the God way, the Christ alone, the few. Here is the false legalistic paraphrase. If you do not understand the gospel, if you would read this, enter heaven through the narrow of morality and good work. Get hell wide and the world leads to destruction. behavior exactly. One saying, why I won't tell you if they think that's what the narrow gate is. There you go. That's the rigid standard. It's a narrow gate. You can't, you can't deviate from that. Morality and good works, of course, is what they think the straight and narrow path is. You can't vary from it. False teachers reinforce this notion by the false doctrines they teach. Now, remember this? What would you say to someone if, if, if someone told you that you must walk the straight and narrow gate to get to heaven? And y'all all, all, everybody that was here knows the answer now. I mean, I, you, can, you can say a lot of things, but I think the first thing that you should say is what do they mean by the straight and narrow path? I think all of us are guilty when someone makes an assertion, we know it's not doctrinal, we assume that we know what they're talking about. And so we answer it on an assumption. And what we need to do is have them articulate that to us. What do you mean by the straight and narrow path? That in itself a lot of times derails them. They don't, they've heard someone else say it. They haven't even formulated in their own mind what that is, but they heard someone else say it. It sounds good. They thought they'd give it a shot. And so you ask them, what does that mean? Sometimes they'll just blather around until finally they say, well, I don't really know. Misunderstanding of this verse has caused untold numbers of people to reject the true gospel. They're certainly not attracted to the narrow gate, which in their mind eliminates most of the things that they like to do. To them, entering the narrow gate would result in a boring life with no fun or excitement. 
They know nothing of John 10.10 where Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Verse 15. Beware. This is a present active imperative again. You have to constantly beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, I think it's interesting that the Lord gave a warning about false teachers immediately following His comment about the narrow and wide gates because He knew that they were going to distort that. He knew that they were going to turn it into a system of works. And so He says, beware of false teachers. Verse 16, You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? Who is it that they will... Who will you know? The false teachers. Isn't that what he said? He's talking about false teachers here. Beware of false teachers. Here, you will know them. People... I've talked... I've asked you before, how many people have questioned your eternal salvation because they didn't think you were producing enough fruit? And I don't, I don't know if anybody raised their hand. Maybe you're, you live cleaner and more moral than I do or something, or, or you just don't get around the right, the, the right or the wrong kind of people. But I've, said, I've had that said to me more than once. And finally, after I, I grew up spiritually a little more and I, put, I connected the dots and they said, you, and they say, you will know them by their fruit. I said, yeah? I said, that's talking about false teachers, not even talking about believers. Well, that was a big deal for me. Change the subject. We'll know is epigonosco. Future middle indicative means it, this will take place. It's certain. The middle voice means you're going to be benefited by that. You're going to be benefited because you were, up here in verse 15, beware. Present tense. You're, you're actively on guard for false doctrines and these false teachers. And because of that, you will know them and that's the middle voice means you're going to be benefited by this. You're not going to buy into their false notions. When he was saying that you can know the... the uh, in other words, these false teachers were posing as believers. Was he saying that you can know believers by their fruits or by their behavior? No, he was referring to false teachers. But... What was the fruit? Their behavior? No, it couldn't be their behavior because they were they looked like what? Sheep. They behaved like sheep. You couldn't tell their behavior from the sheep's behavior. In other words, they looked exactly what you would think a believer acted like. So when he says, you will know them by their fruits, he couldn't have been talking about behavior because they looked like... Remember the sheep? The What does that look like? Well, a sheep would look at that and say, Matt, come on over here. Let's, let's be friends. So what was it? It was their words. It's what they say. Their fruit was the destructive false doctrines that they taught. That was the fruit. That's how you know a false teacher is by what he says. And then we went to Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. And it's talking about if a, a, a prophet... Uh, does signs and wonders and, and, he, and he has all the works that appears to be a legitimate prophet 
But he says, uh, he spoke to you, let us go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them. And he says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet. It's the words that he says, not what he does, that makes the difference. Because they can fool you. Well, this goes on to say that the, uh, don't listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him, and you shall keep His commandments, listen to His voice, and serve Him and cling to Him. So the whole idea is we have to be alert to false teachers. We have to know them by their fruit. Their fruit is what they say. And Today, you can go on the Nut Channel at any time and look at these big uh, coliseums that are full of tens of thousands of people. And you have somebody up there that is a charlatan. They are a false teacher. They teach false doctrine, and yet they're appearing to do things that are supernatural. And the people are not listening to what they say. They're looking at what they do, and they fall for the lie because they don't know this doctrine. I don't care what anybody does as a supernatural thing, if it appears to be, or even if it is, you still do not listen to them if they are teaching false doctrine. Because there is someone else other than God that's in the supernatural business. He's not in it to the extent that God is, but there are counterfeiters. Here's where we're starting tonight. It doesn't matter how big a following one has, how eloquent or articulate one is, how many miracles it appears one does, or how many good works one has accomplished. If their teaching is contrary to the Word of God, they are full false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing. And I don't care how many times they say Jesus or Lord or faith or any other words that mean something to us, they are... They are wolves. Isaiah 8, 19 through 20. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. And the dawn here in the Hebrew is shakar, S-H-A-K-A-R, and it means light. They have no light. They are in darkness. They are wolves. They, have, they are really ministers of Satan. And the only way one can identify false teachers is by knowing Bible doctrine. There is no other way. If you don't know the Word of God, you will be duped. You'll get some something in the mail that somebody says this is the prayer shawl that they prayed over and you need to uh, rub it on your head and uh, uh, sprinkle some water on it and you're going to get rich and all, you're going to be duped. You know how many people get rich off of this garbage? They have no discernment because they have no doctrine. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? You can't learn sound doctrine from false teachers. Can't be done. Verse 17 and 18. Now, this is, this is important to concentrate on this part because it has uh, kind of a twist here. <clears throat> so every good tree, the good tree is a teacher of truth. 
Every good tree bears, and this is a present active indicative. It is their custom. They constantly, continually, they are teaching truth. So the good fruit is teaching accurate doctrine. So every good tree, teacher of truth, bears, that is, uh, continues to bear good fruit, and the fruit is the accurate doctrine. But the bad tree, which is false teachers, bears, and this again, present active indicative, they continue to do this, bad fruit, which is false doctrine. Verse 18, a good tree, that would be a, a teacher, cannot produce bad fruit. And this is an infinitive, it's in the present tense, a present active if you have a good tree, if you have someone that is a teacher of truth, they cannot consistently produce bad fruit. Nor can a bad tree, that would be a teacher, that produces, uh, uh, can a bad tree produce, again, present active means it's continually produce good fruit, which is be true doctrine. He's speaking metaphorically here, and I'm filling in the gaps. Now, <clears throat> this does not mean that a good tree cannot bear bad fruit sometimes. How many of you have fruit trees? I have some. And every once in a while, I'll have a good producer. I have a Sam Houston peach tree. Well, I got this is. Sam Houston peach tree number two. The first one produced for about eight or ten years, and you know it's an early producer. My Sam Houston peach tree right now, that's the fourth one? Well, I've been informed that was number four. That's how much I can gauge time. Um, it's already blooming out. If we have a freeze, I don't know what's going to happen. But anyway, uh, wonderful tree, but every once in a while, it will bear fruit that I have to chunk. I have to throw out because it's not a good fruit. But it's not its nature. I mean, it's got abundance of good fruit, but every once in a while you have a, a bad fruit. So it's not saying that a good, a good teacher of truth may not at one time, somewhere along the way, say something that is not true, something that is not accurate. Let me tell you something. There has never been a man that stood behind the pulpit that was 100% accurate always. We, a, a good pastor will strive. He will do everything. Knock his, his lights out. He will just do everything to be accurate. But we are, even pastors are still growing. And as they grow, as they get up to this level, they'll look down here and say, oh wow, that, that, that can't be right. And if they're humble, then they're going to change that and they're going to get it right. If you've ever grown fruit trees, you know about the bad fruit. A sound teacher may on occasion teach something false, but it's not his nature to do so. Uh, verse 19, every tree that does not bear, consistently bear, present active, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Every tree that would be false teacher that consistently does not bear good fruit, that means teach accurate doctrine, is an unbeliever and will eventually be thrown into the lake of fire. He cannot bear good fruit. He cannot teach accurate doctrine because he does not believe it. Either he doesn't know it or he knows it and does not believe it. 
verse 20. So then you will know them, that is, false teachers, by their fruits, that is, by what they teach. And if you don't know doctrine, if you do not know the, at least the fundamentals of systematic theology, then you are prone to believe anything. Now, he continues with a very interesting part here. Verse 21. Now, everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Oh, wow. What is this? There's going to be people who profess Christ and they're not going to enter the heaven because they don't do the will of my Father? Are we in trouble here? Is this some work that we must do? There are multitudes who claim to be Christians who are not. Why not? Because they have not done the will of the Father. Only the one who does the will of my Father will enter the kingdom of God. Did you see that in verse 21? It's talking about entering the kingdom. It's not talking about inheriting the kingdom. We're talking about entering the kingdom. We're talking about whether someone is saved or not. They have to do the will of my Father. What is the will of our Father? Look at John 6.40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. That's the will of the Father. Be sure you get that because someone is going to say, oh, you've got to do the will of the Father. What's the will of the Father? And they're going to say, well, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and Galatians chapter 5. That's not the will of the Father. The will, will of the Father is that you don't do any of those things. No, John, I want you to write, make sure you have John 6.40 in the margin where it says Matthew 7.21 so you will remember that is the will of the Father that you believe on the Son. He's talking about false teachers who never believed in the Son. They never did the will of God, which was to accept Christ as their Savior. That's why they're thrown into the fire. Verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And what is he going to say? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you you who practice lawlessness. Look at this. I want you to underline on that day. Very importante there. On that day. What day is that referring to? great white throne. They're going to say, Lord, Lord, then, and they're going to know that it's true. But they're not saying it on earth when they were still alive. Uh, They might be saying, Lord, Lord, but they didn't mean Lord, Lord. They didn't accept Christ as their Savior. See up here? Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. And you hear these these false teachers, and they say, Lord, ten times more than anybody else. Lord, 
Lord this, Lord that, Jesus, and all the rest. But he says not everybody who says that is going to enter the kingdom. They have to do the will of my Father. What's the will of my Father? Believe in the Son. They haven't done that. And so, verse 22, Many will say to me, On that day, the day that Jesus, they're standing before Jesus Christ at the great white throne, they're going to acknowledge Him as Lord, and they're going to mean it. But it's too late then, isn't it? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name? And in Your name did we not cast out demons in Your name, perform miracles? What is He talking about there? Works! They're trying to get in by their works. They've they've missed Christ. They didn't accept Christ. And now they're at the great white throne. And now they're calling Him Lord, Lord. And they're talking about all these things they did which should get them into heaven. These religious false teachers did not recognize Jesus Christ as their Lord and only hope of salvation during their lifetime on earth. But they will at the great white throne. It is on that day that they will call Him Lord, Lord, but it will be too late. Notice that they are relying, what they are relying on to get into heaven. They start reciting a list of works, prophesying, casting out demons, and performing miracles. Do you see how clear this is? These are false teachers. They never did the will of God. They never believed in Jesus Christ. And then at the great white throne, on that day, they're going to be saying, Lord, Lord, and they're going to mean it. And the only thing they have to try to get into the kingdom is their good works because they rejected Christ. And they're going to be tossed into the lake of fire. Verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those who rely on their good works to get to heaven are not recognized by Jesus Christ. They are not part of His family because they were never born again by trusting in Christ alone for eternal salvation. But they look like sheep. They knew Scripture. They were doing all these works. People were listening to them. People were following them. They went to seminary. They had the credentials. They had the degrees. They had the, they had the charisma. But they didn't do the one thing that gets you into heaven. And that's do the will of God, which is, what did that say? Believe in the Son. Believe in Christ. Now, it used to bother me. I thought, lawlessness. Why does it say you who practice lawlessness? Because they... It didn't appear that they were practicing lawlessness. I mean, sheep pretty much uh, aren't acting like wolves. Here's the the key. The lawlessness they practiced wasn't necessarily a a lascivious or antinomian lifestyle. It was teaching false doctrine. That's what's against the law, is teaching false doctrine. The other is as well, you know, antinomian... Nomian comes from namas, which means law, and they were against the law. It's a lifestyle of, of, of lawlessness and our lasciviousness. There have been several religious leaders who were living a double life, one of apparent righteousness before their followers and one of licentiousness in their private life. 
a, a wolf can appear to be a sheep among the followers and live a double standard and out when they get into private life. Uh, there's been several of them, well-known ones that were caught soliciting, soliciting prostitutes and some of them have said that they were homosexuals. All, a lot of things that have happened. But that's not the lawlessness I said necessarily that this is talking about. There, can, there are false teachers who don't get into any of that but they still are lawless because they're teaching false doctrine. However, the issue here was their false teaching, not their behavior. Look at that. Many will say to me on that day, the great white throne, Lord, Lord, it's too late then. Did we not do all these things, all these works? And he says, and I will say to them, I, did, I never knew you. You're not part of my family. You were never born again. You don't have God's righteousness. You don't have eternal life. You're, you're not part of my family. Depart from me. Where are they going to depart to? The lake of fire. So the reason I, I, I brought these scriptures into play is to show you that those who would look at you and try to determine your eternal destiny from your behavior are making a very a very serious error, a mistake. Because if you have done the will of the Father, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the only thing that God is going to accept and that Christ is going to recognize. And I don't know if we're going to be at the great white throne as bystanders, whether we're going to see it happen or not, Nothing this is, that this is talking about here pertains to us, and it has nothing to do with our behavior. Now, if you think, okay, if none of that has anything to do with my behavior, I think I'll let the good times roll. I wouldn't advise it. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And He's vigilant when it comes to Discipline. We're going to be in the next. We have a lot of thoughts that I have about our Christ 